Get ready for a one-of-a-kind experience. Welcome, welcome to the Starter Zone, your home for the weekly news from around the world. Your host for this journey, Amanda. We all need a little more chip, Skylark. She's going to bring you everything you need to hear about entertainment, gaming, and maybe just a little bit bizarre. Hold tight, because here she comes. Well, thank you so much, Raven, for that beautiful introduction. Hello there, my friends. And good day to you all. Welcome back to the Starter Zone. I am your host, Amanda. Today is the 27th of February. We are struggling to get through it, but we are getting through it. We've got Leap Day coming up in a couple days. Well, let's make the most of that. Let's check out the headlines that we are covering today. The SAG Awards were just this past weekend, so we're going to go over some of the winners. Madonna had a kind of a scary fall during a show a follow-up to the Charlie Wood story from last week. Twitch got a fine. There's an update about the state of host Wendy Williams, Fairly Odd Parents, the weekly box office numbers, and more. Come get comfy, guys. Let's get started. All right, shall we start off with some music news? Madonna's Celebration Tour launched back in October of 2023 as one of the season's most highly anticipated traveling acts, and it featured a set list that spans 40 years, is a reflective showcase of the superstar's career in movies and music and pop culture at large. But during a recent performance in Seattle, the 65-year-old laughed off a moment during the live set, which saw one of her dancers seemingly trip while dragging Madonna across the stage in a chair as she sang her 1986 smash hit, Open Your Heart. There are many videos that have been shared to social media showing what happened. Madonna can be seen. She's sitting like in this chair and her dancer, he he comes out and he's wearing like these high heels. So he walks over and he kind of tips her back to start pulling the chair backwards. And she can be seen falling to the stage on her back when he trips over his feet. Now, she quickly rolled over onto her stomach to continue singing the song and kind of let out this laugh before standing up to continue on with the performance. The Ray of Light recording artist is known for powering through amid these stage mishaps. There was a notable incident at, I think it was the 2015 Brit Awards. She fell down a set of stairs after a wardrobe problem. Um, She said after the performance, Armani hooked me up. My beautiful cape was tied too tight, but nothing can stop me and love really lifted me up. Thank you for the good wishes. I'm fine. Other headlining-making moments of the show, Madonna brought Julia Garner, who is the star 
of the singer-songwriter's delayed musical biopic about her, her life. Apparently, she's getting her own movie. Uh, they did a rendition of Vogue together, as well as uh, Madonna went to sing Live to Tell, while portraits of victims of the AIDS crisis appeared on screens behind her. Now, fans have been concerned about Madonna as of late with about her health. If you recall, back in June of 2023, she was admitted to the ICU, Intensive Care Unit, for several days and was in an induced coma for 48 hours. Due to her recovery, her August start date for this tour was pushed back to October. She had like a bacterial infection and, and went septic. And so they had to put her in this coma. And she says she's come out. She's fine. I mean, she is in her 60s and doing all these huge dance numbers. And she's still got it. I'll admit, you know, she's doing a lot more moves than I could probably do. Uh, but there are some concerns about, you know, is she in the best of health? I'm sure. I mean, she's still performing. She's still going. And honestly, her tour is going to continue uh, from now until April the 26th. Now let's go see what's happening in the wide world of sports. Last week's episode, we featured a story about the pending debut of Charlie Woods, the 15-year-old son of the legendary Tiger Woods. Charlie participated back on the 22nd of February in the pre-qualifying round of the Cognizant Classic in the Palm Beaches event held at the Lost Lake Golf Club. Well, how did Charlie do? Oh, poor kid. He shot 16 over 86. Ouch. Tiger himself was not in attendance, although Charlie was followed by his mother, Ellen Nordegren, and a very zealous gallery throughout the morning. This kid had a rough day, and it wasn't just the playing, but let me explain what happened. Woods dealt with more than a really bad driver, and he struggled short in his short game in his attempt to get closer to qualifying for his first PGA Tour event. When his first out-of-bounds drive went flying just this wide right shot, towards the rough on hole number five. So did the fans. They were hoping to grab a souvenir from the brush, the brush, the palms. Dude, y'all, he hit the ball. They went after the ball to try to take it. He got super frustrated. He made his way up the fairway. Spectators started realizing there were no ropes to bar them from the course. That's not cool. What kind of setup is that? In turn, The fans walked so close to him on the fairway, they ignored repeated requests from the officials at the tournament to stay on the cart path. And you can hear in one video, there's a disgruntled fan asking an official, who are you, the the fire marshal? His in... Okay, so he had this this following. So think of this way. You've got this one guy walking down the fairway and the, the masses are growing. The following increased to more than 50 fans as he headed for the back nine, including a grandma who learned he was competing and went and pulled granddaughter out of school in the hopes that Woods would notice her. What is this, medieval England? So after Woods left the 12th green, another fan approached him with a pen and a copy of Tiger's book, How I Play Golf, and demanded that Charlie sign the book. And when the officials told the fan it wasn't allowed, she made a commotion of shushes and starts yelling, I live here, as Woods teed off on the number 13. His already bad day could have been worse if it wasn't for his two-man security detail, which include a Martin County Sheriff's deputy. 
After a slow start with multiple bogeys and then a double bogey, all hope was lost by the seventh hole. It was a par four, and it took Woods 12 strokes to finish. He made the turn at 11 over 47 and finished with a 39 on the back nine, which included one more double bogey and two more bogeys. While Woods' performance may mean they renamed the Lost Lake Golf Club to the Lost Ball Golf Club, Charlie Woods will surely have more attempts at qualifying for his first PGA Tour event. After all, he did just get his learner's permit about two weeks ago and left the golf course on Thursday afternoon in the driver's seat of his own vehicle. This won't be the last time we see Charlie, but how many of us want to see a little bit better security next time? That poor kid was just railroaded by these fans, and the officials go, Hey, guys, y'all can't do this. The fans just, no, didn't listen to a word they said. It was shameful. I mean, look, you've got the son of the most famous and most recognizable golf player in the world. You have no ropes for the fans like you do in other PGA events. Your security detail is very ineffective. You're your guy has to has his own security detail which at least for the most part kept the people away but i mean that's gonna mess with your head you've got all this pressure on you because you've got in the back of your head you've got i'm tiger with the sun i'm tiger's son i'm tiger's son i gotta do awesome i'm tiger's son and then you've got the fans all around you screaming and wanting your attention throwing their granddaughters in your face i mean god the pressure oh poor kid would not want to be that but We'll see Charlie again, and let's hope uh, let's hope he does a little better next time. I mean, I mean, honestly, he did he did terrible, but his form looked good at least. You know, there's potential. I think he's just he's got to get used to playing in front of those crowds. Um, that because that I mean, look, being in front of an audience versus playing with just your dad, totally different experience. So I think he's gonna do fine. He's just there's a lot he's got to get past. So we'll see you next time, Charlie. All right, guys, time to download some gaming news. So Twitch is a global platform with a presence across a wide range of cultures and languages all over the world. I mean, this thing is hugely international, but keeping the platform alive and compliant with regional laws is definitely a challenge. For example, Twitch was recently banned in Turkey alongside Kick, by the way, due to people gambling on stream. In some regions, support for Twitch's streaming services can cease out of nowhere. So here we come to South Korea. This is a kind of a unique case. People, we've known about Twitch's services. They're basically, okay, so they're having to pull out of South Korea. Services will be disabled in South Korea for reasons. But the government is catching up with the services they've disabled over the past year or so, and they're starting to hit the company with fines. The first one was over $300,000 in U.S. money, and that may be just the first to, to, to hit, the first of many. In the wake of them ceasing service, they've been fined. It's $435 million, 400 million Korean, but not for the entire service being terminated. This is related only to them making it so that users in South Korea can't access the VODs, the videos on demand on the platform, which is actually apparently a direct violation of South Korea's telecom laws by the Korean uh, Telecommunications Commission, the KCC. According to local news sources, the KCC made the decision 
that Twitch terminated the ability for users in South Korea to access VODs wasn't necessary to keep the service alive. If you remember, Don Clan Dan Clancy, who's the CEO, said that as of right now, streaming in South Korea is not viable. If they, it's not affordable. They can't, they can't keep the service alive, paying all the the fine, the fees, and everything that the South Korea requires. So they're starting to cut back. When asked to justify their claims, Twitch declined due to contractual obligations related to keeping user and site data private. Now, additionally, Twitch would have to present evidence that their decision to gradually start taking these features away from the South Korean users and leave the country was necessary. And this means that Twitch isn't likely to return service to South Korea anytime soon. There's also a good chance that Twitch is going to be forced to provide refunds for those who have already been affected by the service being discontinued. And the KCC warned Twitch that they would need to prepare user protection measures as they cease service in the country. And officially, as of yesterday, the 26th, all Twitch services in South Korea were terminated and the withdrawal of all Korean Twitch businesses were completed. Somebody summed it up pretty well. South Korea created an internet tax and it was like a 1,000% tax. Twitch couldn't pay that tax without losing billions of dollars. So they're like, we're out. We're going we're gonna to quit. So South Korea is like, no, 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 you can't do that. We're going to fine you for that. And so now here come the South Korean local Twitch streamers. And they decided we're going to protest the fact that Twitch is shutting down in my country in a very unique way. What did they do? They broke their own country's TOS. They broadcasted adult content like sexualized games. They started wearing revealing outfits. For one example, Twitch streamer Dayong2 broadcasted an adult game to the tune of thousands of viewers. And um, the clips are still available on his channel. Uh, similarly, streamer Erin Chan went on camera wearing this really risque outfit. Viewers were shocked, but actually kind of amused. Look, this is not something that they would that they would normally do. Um, and it's like people are like, you know, this is perfect. What are they going to do? Ban them as they're pulling out? I mean, it's if it's a, if that's how they're going to go, that's how they're going to go out, right? And so more and more started doing this as kind of a a big. Uh, for lack of a nicer term, F you to Twitch. But at the same time, can you really can you really blame Twitch for looking at this as a as a as a financial thing? We can't afford to broadcast in your country. Your government has imposed a tax. We can't pay, so we're leaving. What do you want us to do? It's a very sad, very unfortunate situation. Dan Clancy seems to be trying everything he can to make things work. But he's having to admit the realization that Twitch cannot sustain itself the way it's going. And they're having to make very unpopular moves. But I'm hoping that in the long run, things will work out. Now, speaking of unpopular moves. EA Sports. It's in the game. I don't really know that I have to go much further than that for that to be the unpopular opinion. Anyway. We covered a while back the imminent arrival of EA Sports College Football 25. And while we have to wait until May for the full reveal of College Football 25, EA Sports did share some new details, including how much the players are going to be compensated, what will and won't be included in the game, and more. In an article by ESPN, EA Sports revealed how much it would pay players opting to use their name, image and likeness, which is called the NIL, 
in college football 25. And the article notes that over 11,000 college football players can opt in to be featured in the game. Now, remember, this is relatively new. College ball players were not re- until recently allowed to be compensated for their likeness on the collegiate level. This is a recent update where they are now able to receive something, right? It's only fair. Hey, you're going to use my name. You're going to use my, my face and everything. Why shouldn't I get money, right? Well, players who opt into College Football 25 will receive $600 and a copy of the game. The game itself is valued at $70, according to ESPN, and they further note that student-athletes will remain in the game for all of their collegiate football careers, but can opt out of future installments. Are you serious? That's it? Yeah, the copy of the the game and the $600 is not the only form of compensation players will receive. You know, they get media, right? Should a player remain in the game for multiple years, they will be compensated annually, even if they transfer, with the only requirement for transfer students being that they remain on a roster for that school's football program. EA Sports' VP of Business Development, Sean O'Brien, told ESPN that the game studio looked at deals they completed for other sports video games, such as the Madden NFL series, and that the deal made for the college football series comes with no expected services by the athlete and will be guaranteed no matter the game's success. In a separate article, EA Sports confirmed ESPN several things that will and will not be included in the game. Reiterating once again, Dynasty Mode and Road to Glory will return. In addition to returning, College Football 25 will run on the same engine as Madden. Madden is currently running on the Frostbite engine. It will include every bowl game and incorporate a 12-team college football playoff system. The NIL, the transfer portal, and some of the newer inclusions in a collegiate sports will be featured. Although ESPN, I'm sorry, EA Sports didn't go into detail via ESPN as to how both will be implemented just yet. And although all 134 football schools have agreed to participate in College Football 25 with a, up to, I think they said it was 85 players on each team, EA Sports revealed that real-life coaches such as the University of Georgia head coach Kirby Smart will not be featured. However, O'Brien did not rule out the inclusion of coaches in the future and said that EA Sports is exploring ways to offer coaches the opportunity to opt in beyond year one. So this College Football 25 will get a full reveal sometime in May and has a release window set for this coming summer, 2024. All right, enough of that. Let's go check out the world of entertainment. So this past weekend, we had the 30th Annual Screen Actors Guild Awards, the SAG Awards, and they were held at the Shrine Auditorium and Expo Hall in Los Angeles. The the show was streamed live globally on Netflix, which was a first for the show and the streamer, and it freed it up to be a little different from other award shows, as in there were no commercials, a couple of F-bombs, and plenty of time for the acceptance speeches. Well, while this year's ceremony didn't actually feature a host, Idris Elba unofficially fulfilled those duties, both opening and closing the show, and appearing at least one other time in the middle, drawing some laughs from the crowd. Other buzzy entertainers entertainers who took the stage as presenters included Billie Eilish, 
Jessica Chastain, America Ferreira, Robert Downey Jr., and the SAG-AFTRA president, Fran Drescher, among many others. Well, who do you think won this time? Yeah, if you said Oppenheimer, you were right. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer scored three big wins, adding even more industry prizes to the formidable war chest. But the film's top honor, the SAG Award for Best Ensemble, brought all the cast members, including Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., and Emily Blunt to the stage. Their co-star, Kenneth Branagh, noted that they were only last together back in July when they walked out of the, the premiere of the movie in solidarity with the SAG after strike. Thus far, Oppenheimer has won the top prizes at the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, the Critics' Choice Awards, and is considered to be the frontrunner for the Best Picture at the Oscars. Last year's Best Picture winner, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, also triumphed at the SAG's first, though only five of the last ten ensemble winners have gone on to Oscar glory. The SAG Awards have a much better track record when it comes to clarifying the individual acting races, since those winners have matched up exactly with the Oscars each time in the last couple of years. In, com- in the competitive Best Actor race, Oppenheimer star Killian Murphy triumphed over Paul Giamatti with The Holdovers and Bradley Cooper with Maestro, among others, for his performance as physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who, if y'all didn't actually know or know anything about this, he was the one who led the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb during World War II. Poor Thing star Emma Stone won the BAFTA for Best Actress last weekend, but... Killers of the Flower Moon star Lily Gladstone triumphed at SAG for the turn as the Osage tribe woman whose family members were murdered by her husband and his uncle. In the supporting actor races, SAG honored Divine Joy Randolph, who played the grieving school cook in The the Holdovers, and Robert Downey Jr., uh, who delivered a absolutely fantastic performance as a political operative in Oppenheimer. Both stars have dominated this award season and will most, almost, it's not not guaranteed, but it's almost certain that they will win on Oscar night. Elsewhere at the ceremony, Barbara Streisand accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award as well. I'll post the complete list of winners. We're not going to take up the entire show for this, but a couple of highlights. Outstanding cast, like mentioned, was Oppenheimer. Killian Murphy took uh, actor in a lead role. Gladstone for actress. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Sorry, I have so much trouble with her name. Divine Joy Randolph took supporting role actor and actress. Stunt ensemble of the movie, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now, Pedro Pascal won Best Actor in a Drama Series for The Last of Us, his role as Joel. And in his acceptance speech, he didn't look prepared at all, guys. He admitted he was a little drunk. Have a listen. This is, uh, this is, this is wrong for a number of reasons. Um, I'm a little drunk. Uh, I thought I could get drunk. And uh, uh, thank you, HBO. Uh, uh, Jeez, Louise. Um, I'm making a fool of myself. But thank you so much for this. He did finish his speech by thanking several members of the SAG union as well as his family and claims he was going to go off stage so that he can go ahead and have a panic attack. Now eyes are turning to March the 10th and the Academy Awards. This event is honestly, it's going to be pretty huge. And personally, I'm expecting Oppenheimer to pretty much sweep the awards. Sorry, Barbie fans. It's just the awards have really just not gone y'all's way this season. So, all right. So moving on, this one's really, 
this one's disturbing. It's not even just sad, it's disturbing. Let's talk about Wendy Williams. The talk show Wendy Williams Show was created by Wendy herself and debuted back in 2008 from a studio in New York City. Wendy began her career in radio and developed a reputation for being quick-witted and having no filter in her interviews. She was known for her candor and was. she's also been known to ruffle feathers uh, among those in the entertainment industry along the way. Now, Williams has often prided herself on being candid with the viewers as well and has been pretty open uh, to talking about her previous struggle with addiction. Back in 2019, she spoke on the show about living in a sober house after seeking treatment for drug use, and and she ended up filing for divorce from her husband, Kevin Hunter, the same year. So she was the host of the Wendy Williams show until 2022, when Sherry Shepard took over the time slot. Prior to the show's end, Williams had been absent from hosting duties since the premiere of the 13th season, which ended up being the last season. At the time, the show attributed her absence to Williams' recovery from COVID-19. But later, she said she was struggling with Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder. Now, there's more. Former talk show host has been diagnosed with progressive aphasia and frontotemporal dementia, according to representatives for Williams. This news was shared in a press conference back on the 22nd of February to correct inaccurate and hurtful rumors about her health, according to a team that Williams uh, had written in a statement. As Wendy's fans are aware, in the past, she has been open with the public about her medical struggles with Gray's disease and lymphedema, as well as other significant challenges related to her health. This is according to the press release. Over the past few years, questions have been raised at times about Wendy's ability to process information, and many have speculated about her condition, particularly when she begins to lose words, acts erratically at times, and has difficulty understanding financial transactions. Williams apparently received her aphasia and dementia diagnoses in 2023 from Well Cornell Medicine, according to representatives. This condition, it impacts communication, personality, and the ability to understand language, according to the Mayo Clinic. According to the, more in the press release, said the decision to share this news was difficult and made after careful consideration, not only to advocate for understanding and compassion for Wendy, but to raise awareness about aphasia and frontotemporal dementia. Now, Williams is currently under a court-ordered guardianship, and a lifetime documentary about and produced by Williams with the participation of her family, was released in two parts this past weekend. I'll come back to that. The show was filmed from August 22nd, uh, I'm sorry, August of 2022 to April of 23. Discussions and awareness regarding aphasia have been pretty prevalent and late when actor Bruce Willis announced that he had the condition. They made that known back in the spring of 2022, and his family has been generous, and I'm going to say that we're generous, about releasing information regarding his health ever since. They've been showing videos, showing, you know, celebration of birthdays and other special events and showing basically it's documenting his decline. He definitely does not look like the action star of the 80s and 90s that we all know and love. As of October of 2023, Willis can no longer speak. He has lost that ability. It's sad. I mean, the disease is terrible. And we definitely want to 
send best wishes to Wendy and her family as well as the Willis family. But I'm going to come back. Like I said, I, I wanted to mention the, the whole Williams documentary thing. For lack of a better term, after the release of this documentary called Where is Wendy Williams? Fan reaction has been really negative. It has been, there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of dismay. There's a lot of disgust. And the producers of this Lifetime production talk about making this unsettling documentary and what they learned. And he literally said at one point, if we had known she had dementia, we would never have rolled a camera. Okay, I thought that was kind of part of the point. But anyway, Mark Ford, producer, said at a certain point, we were more worried about what would happen if we stopped filming than if we had continued. So for the better part of a year, cameras kept rolling. They were documenting and in the increasingly fragile state of this former talk show host that she found herself in. Um, as she alternatively was craving her family, her former TV platform, excessive amounts of alcohol, all while struggling to remain coherent. And what ultimately came of that footage is this raw, devastating four-hour-plus documentary. So they ended up doing it in two, uh, two nights, two hours per night. Williams, her son, her jeweler turned manager, they're all credited as executive producers. But the project really just, it asks more questions than it answers exactly as to what exactly is going on with her and why a court-ordered guardian has pretty much cut her off from her family. Two days before the, the documentary was set to debut, her guardian, whose identity is redacted through the documentary, filed a lawsuit against Lifetime, Lifetime's parent company trying to block the network from even airing it. Now, a judge dismissed the request, citing the First Amendment. So it aired as planned, uh, with key members of Williams's family screening all four hours with producers beforehand. And to their knowledge, William, who's said to be in an undisclosed facility where she's getting treatment for the cognitive issues, she hasn't seen it herself. But now the thing, it's come out in its entirety, and they really just, people are, are disgusted with what they're seeing. You know, okay, so they're saying, you know, Wendy loves the camera. Uh, she became really close to the producers and such. And, and we're all human beings. But the, the Guardian was trying to get this whole thing stopped. So why, why was the Guardian kept out of this to where she's now, or he or she, they don't say, is having to go through the court to try to get this thing stopped? She looks scary. Okay, look, Wendy Williams is not in good health right now, but she looks very scary. She looks, um, I don't want to say drugged out, but she does. She looks incoherent, and it looks really horrible. People are saying she looked like she was very drunk, if it wasn't drunk, that she was drunk. Um, it's just really... It's really sad, and I just don't know if something like that should have been broadcast. I mean, I understand Wendy Williams. They're saying Wendy wanted this to be produced. She was the executive producer. They wanted to show this. Okay, I get that. But if she has this cognitive decline to the point where she has a, a court-appointed appointed guardian, can she make those kinds of decisions rationally to where it won't be to her detriment? At this point, what does she really have to lose? Her career is over. She can't do her job anymore. And she's just going to receive treatment for the rest of her life. 
so does it hurt anything i guess not i mean um, unless you're her family and you don't want to see your family member subjected to this kind of criticism and circus i mean you have cameras pointed directly in her face her eyes are bugging out and she just she just looks strung out on something now true her she kind of always did have a little bit of that look to her i know that's very unkind but she always kind of did have this look to her that she was very hyped and then maybe just her, her natural personality showing through but with the admissions of having an alcohol substance problem in in conjunction with the aphasia and the dementia I, it just i don't know it, it just it looked exploitive i didn't care for it and i i, I had to stop watching at one point because i'm like i just this is so uncomfortable to see so feel free to check it out yourself like it, it was on lifetime and uh it does delve into a little bit of, of you know what's going on with her what where has she been she had didn't just disappear for the sake of retirement she's having health problems so like i said best wishes to her family and to her uh, and hoping that she she gets the treatment that she needs at this point but for now i do want to switch over uh, just a little bit to a lighter note a new version of the fairly odd parents has been ordered to a series at nickelodeon <laughs> Man, I miss that show. It's called Fairly Odd Parents A New Wish, and this is a new series that will see the return of voice actors Suzanne Blakesley and Darren Norris as Wanda and Cosmo, respectively. Nickelodeon has ordered 20 episodes of the series, and it will debut on the cable channel the, later this spring. The series will also be available on Netflix internationally later this year. Blakesley and Harris will be joined by Ashley Crystal Harrison, who will voice the new main character of Hazel Wells. The official description in, for the series states this. In Fairly Odd Parents, A New Wish, 10-year-old Hazel Wells has just moved to the big city of Dimadelphia because of her dad's new job. On top of being in an unfamiliar environment, it's the first time she's been without her brother, Anthony, who has just left for college, leaving her lonely and unsure of herself. All of that changes when the pink and green-haired neighbors next door reveal that they are no ordinary neighbors. They're Cosmo and Wanda, fairly godparents. And they're coming out of retirement to make all of Hazel's wishes come true. The original Fairly Odd Parents ran for 10 seasons between 2001 and 2017 on Nickelodeon for a total of 172 episodes. Now, there was also a series of three live-action films with Drake Bell playing a grown-up Timmy Turner. Then Paramount Plus then aired a live-action sequel series in 2022 called The Fairly Odd Parents, Fairly Odder, which saw Timmy hand over Cosmo and Wanda to his cousin Viv before he leaves for college. Well, this is happy news for Nickelodeon fans, but fans of Vice.com are kind of unhappy right now. Vice was this swashbuckling media upstart that was once valued at more than $5 billion for its vaunted appeal to young audiences, but they are effectively shuttering its independent news operations. Bruce Dixon, who's the chief executive of Vice Media Group, told employees back on the 22nd of February that several hundred positions will be eliminated and the company will no longer publish at its flagship website, Vice.com, although he left open the possibility of Vice providing content through other media organizations. He wrote in a memo, it is no longer cost-effective for us to distribute our digital content the way 
we have done previously. Moving forward, we will look to partner with established media companies to distribute our digital content, including our news, on their global platforms as we fully transition to a studio model. The downfall of Vice represents one of the biggest media busts in recent memory as the company went from darling of the digital media area to bankruptcy. Last year, Vice Media Group filed for bankruptcy and was sold for $350 million to its former lenders, led by giant investment firm Fortress Investment Group. Journalists who have done work for Vice spent the day furiously trying to save their work after hearing rumors that the site could imminently shut down. Then, as of the 22nd, the site was still accessible. Employees were told that they would learn more about their fate early in the next week. A familiar a person who's familiar with Fortress's thinking said, we are out of the daily news business, and they're speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss personnel matters, but offering no specifics. This company was built in such a way that no longer works as part of the media landscape. Vice Media Group also includes other brands. We're talking Refinery29, which is a digital site aimed at young women. That will continue to operate, although executives are in advanced discussions to sell this business, and they're continuing with that process now. Vice was pitched to the public as the future of media, and it grew from this free punk magazine in Montreal, Canada in the 90s to this media conglomerate and had like 3,000 employees, offices around the world. They had an HBO show, film production studio, and a whole bunch more. Its brash co-founder, Shane Smith, was a master salesman for Vice, helping to convince investors in the press that Vice was the future. And its gonzo approach to the news would increasingly make the old guard of journalists irrelevant. Now, Smith predicted Vice would eclipse CNN, ESPN, and MTV. So they had investors like 21st Century Fox and James Murdoch and Disney, of all people, pouring hundreds of millions into Vice. And then in 2014, they had raised like $500 million, and another round of investing put them valued at $5.7 billion, one of the most highly valued media companies ever. Vice stood as the vanguard of a new wave of digital media as it targeted millennials with its content and also produced award-winning journalism. Its news division won several Peabody Awards, including pieces about the Islamic State, white supremacy, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. It also covered uh, the plight of women and girls under Taliban rule in Afghanistan. Then in 2020, they shared a Pulitzer for audio reporting along with the LA Times and This American Life for a story about a kidnapped migrant. Just this past week, Vice News journalist won the television reporting George Polk Award for a report on Russian mercenaries. But Vice was also embroiled in controversy after a 2018 New York Times investigation had exposed a toxic workplace environment and claims of sexual harassment. We've heard this a lot from other companies. One executive was ousted, Smith and another co-founder acknowledged that there was a boys' club culture for the company and that they had failed to create a safe and inclusive workplace where everyone, especially women, could feel respected and thrive. Now, Smith left his post at the top of the company back in 2018, and that's when Vice went through cycles of layoffs and restructuring, and there's, there were these significant hopes that the high sky-high investments could save this, but they just never materialized after that. The company canceled its flagship news program, Vice News Tonight, uh, last year, right, I want to say it was right before they filed for bankruptcy protection. I want to say it was right around that same time. 
after it exited bankruptcy, they ended up selling off some of their brands and instituted another round of layoffs that further hollowed out the news division, even as executives promised a continued commitment to producing news. But look, they were down to about a thousand employees after its one time high of 3,000. That was a lot of layoffs that they did. Back in December, Vice saw more turnover in the executive side, and one of Hulu's founding executives stepped in as the interim executive chairman. Vice ranks joins the ranks of other what they call boom and bust digital news outlets. I mean, BuzzFeed News shut down last year after about, I think it was like a 12-year run for them. And the way that things are going, I don't expect that this is going to be the last company to suffer this kind of a shutdown. Um, so really sad news, but I think it's, it almost sounds like Vice overextended themselves in the short period of time that they were, you know, on top of the world. So I, I'm not like super surprised, I guess. I mean, Vice was everywhere. News sources that I would go and check out, I would see Vice articles pop up. Uh, so I'm not, I, I am, um, I, I am kind of surprised. All right, I'll change them. I am kind of surprised that it's Vice, but at the same time, I'm not surprised to hear of another shutdown. All right, our next story is not typically what I would consider an entertainment story. I mean, I find it fascinating. I didn't technically have a category for it, but why isn't anybody talking about this? Space, the final frontier. Y'all, we just landed something on the moon. Back on February 22nd, a private lander made the first U.S. touchdown on the moon in more than 50 years and managed a weak signal back until flight controllers scrambled to gain better contact. Despite the spotty communication, Intuitive Machines, the company that built and managed the craft, confirmed it had landed upright but didn't provide any other additional details, including whether the lander had reached its intended destination. They were shooting for the moon's south pole. The company ended its live webcast soon after identifying a lone, weak signal from the lander. Said what we can confirm, this is according to mission director Tim Crane, says what we can confirm without a doubt is our equipment is on the surface of the moon. Steve, the CEO, uh, Steve Altimus, pardon me, I know this is a nail biter, but we are on the surface and we are transmitting. Welcome to the moon. Data started streaming in, according to a company announcement two hours after touchdown. This landing put the U.S. back on the surface for the first time since the, uh, the Apollo moonwalkers. It's been that long since we've been up there. Intuitive Machines also became the first private business to pull off a lunar landing, which is a feat achieved by only five other countries. Another U.S. company, Astrobio, uh, Astrobotic Technology, actually tried this last month, but they didn't make it to the moon, and the lander crashed back to Earth. Both of these companies are part of a NASA-supported program to kickstart the lunar economy. Astrobotic was among the first to relay congratulations. They said, an incredible achievement. We can't wait to join you on the lunar surface in the near future. Intuitive machines ace the landing of a lifetime, according to NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Now, the final few hours before touchdown were loaded with a lot of extra stress when the lander's laser navigation system completely failed. The company's flight control team had to press an experimental NASA laser into action, and the lander took an extra lap around the moon to allow time for that last-minute switch. Kind of called that extra lap more like a celebration lap. Yeah, 
pretty awesome stuff. With the change in place, Odysseus descended from a moon-skimming orbit and guided itself towards the surface, aiming for this relatively flat spot among all the, these cliffs and craters near the South Pole. As the designated touchdown time came and went, controllers at the company's command center in Houston anxiously awaited a signal from the spacecraft some 250,000 miles away. And after close to about 15 minutes, the company announced it had received a weak signal. They launched this thing last week. It's a six-footed carbon fiber and titanium lander, and it towered about 14 feet. And it carried six experiments for NASA. The space agency gave the company $118 million to build and fly the lander, which is part of its effort to commercialize lunar deliveries ahead of the planned return of astronauts in just a few years. Intuitive Machines' entry is the latest in a series of landing attempts by countries and private outfits looking to explore the moon and, if possible, capitalize. Japan actually scored a lunar landing last month, joining earlier triumphs by Russia, the U.S., China, and India. Now, what happened? I mean, so the U.S., we bowed out of the lunar race back in 1972 after the Apollo program to put 12 astronauts on the surface. Astrobotic of Pittsburgh gave it a shot last month. They ended up having the, a fuel leak that resulted in their lander coming back and ended up burning up. The intuitive machine's target was about 186 miles shy of the South Pole, about 80 degrees latitude, and closer to the pole than any other spacecraft had ever come. The site is letter, it's kind of flat, surrounded by a bunch of boulders and hills, cliffs and craters that potentially could hold frozen water, which is a big part of why they're focusing here. The lander was programmed to pick in real time the safest spot near the so-called Malapert A crater. The solar-powered lander was intended to operate for about a week until the long lunar night. Now, beside NASA's tech and navigation experiments on board, Intuitive Machines sold space on the lander to a couple of places and people. Columbia Sportswear paid to fly its newest insulating jacket fabric. Sculptor Jeff Coons he bought space for 125 mini moon figurines and Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University bought space for a set of cameras to capture pictures of the descending lander. Okay, I kind of want one of those mini moon figurines. Those are really cute. Like, y'all, this is a huge step for space travel. I mean, I know, you know, you, you always hear about SpaceX and Elon Musk and I know they're working towards getting to Mars. So getting back to the moon is a huge step. This is a very big step for mankind. Again, wonder how long it's going to take to get the humans back on the lunar surface. I know they said that it's going to be in the next couple of years. So who's going to get it done? Is it going to be private or is it going to be NASA? Anyway, speaking of space, let's see what happened with the stars in the box office this weekend. It's time for the box office breakdown. The Bob Marley biopic was number one last week. Did this movie have the staying power?
Paramount's musical biopic Bob Marley One Love ruled again over a barren box office landscape. The film added $13.5 million in its second weekend of release, which is about a 53% decline from its debut. One Love has been a surprise box office success with $71.1 million domestically and $120 million globally. This movie only costs $70 million and the studio only gets to keep about roughly a half of ticket sales, so we'll need a little bit more to keep in the theaters to justify cost, but look. Second weekend in a row, and they had three new releases this weekend. Sony and Crunchyroll's anime sequel, Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaba, to the Hashira training, fared the best among the newcomers that had $11.5 million, enough to earn the number two spot. Hilary Swank's inspirational drama, Ordinary Angels, opened in third place with $6.2 million, while director Ethan Cohen's comedic thriller, Driveway Dolls, and a crash landed in eighth place with 2.5 million. Now for Demon Slayer, who took our number two, the initial ticket sales are slightly better than its predecessor, which was the anime adventure Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaba to the Swordsmith Village. It took a 10.1 million. However, this one, it's 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 not a movie. It's actually the season three finale of the Demon Slayer show. But in any case, these anime features tend to play like horror films in terms of ticket sales. So they have front-loaded performances and they just drop off. Because everybody who wants to see the ending of Season 3 is going to go, but they're not going to go back and see it. So they typically make the majority of their revenues at the box office internationally anyway. Now elsewhere, Madam Web couldn't overcome its terrible reception and it dropped into fourth place for the week. It only collected $6 million, which is a very harsh 61% decline from the initial outing. Sony Spider-Man spinoff starring Dakota Johnson as a paramedic with psychic abilities cost $80 million and has generated a pretty soft $35 million domestically and 42 internationally to date. This one is shaping up to be the year's second major big-budget misfire following the Matthew Vaughn spy comedy Argyle, which cost $200 million to produce and has grossed just, oh, $86 million worldwide. Universal and Illumination's animated comedy Migration rounded out the top five with $3 million in its 10th week of release. To date, the family film has grossed $120 million domestically, $268 worldwide. Overall, it's been a really sluggish box office weekend. Revenues are down roughly about 18% from 2023. So movie theater owners are seriously anxiously awaiting for Dennis Villanueva's big-budget sequel, Dune Part 2. That lands March 1st and is expected to deliver a much-needed box office jolt. So we're looking forward to that release on Friday. Remember, he who controls the spice controls the universe. The box office universe, anyway. Off to the odd news. And now, for something different. We tend to hear a lot of stories from like Australia about animals in weird places and they're usually ones that want to kill you. And I know Florida has a bad reputation about this as well, but in my opinion, the state of Louisiana is not far behind. I mean, they do have more swamp land than Florida does, right? So it doesn't surprise me to present this next story. A Louisiana woman returned to her car after visiting a store and discovered she had a stowaway, a yellow-bellied river snake. Oh no. Amanda Norman said she visited the AT&T store in Lafayette and returned to her car to find she wasn't the only one trying to take a drive. 
Norman told that the local KADN-TV, when I was leaving to get in my car, I noticed something hanging at the bottom of my car. I thought maybe it was a book sack string I had forgot, but once I noticed it, it's a live snake. Norman said she was terrified of the serpent and enlisted the help of some nearby bystanders to eject the stowaway. One man was able to remove the snake from the car and release it into a nearby bush. This is not just the only story. Apparently, a personnel at Coast Guard Air Station in Clearwater, Florida, recently found a slithering stowaway of their own on a helicopter. It's not quite snakes on a plane, but they're close. The station said this unexpected stowaway was found napping on a Jayhawk tailwheel and reluctantly departed the scene when confronted. Coast Guard personnel identified the serpent as a two-foot corn snake, a non-venomous species native to Florida. What did I tell you? Florida and Louisiana were basically cousins. At least both of the snakes were non-venomous, but still. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Well, at least with this next story, we have a new way to escape the creepy, slittery things. An electrical engineer student in Germany took a toy car designed for a child to ride and modified it so it could reach a speed of 92.24 miles per hour. Now playing in theaters, Fast and the Furious, the junior years. Marcel Paul, an electrical engineering student at Fulda University of Applied Sciences, said he spent 10 months conducting research and modifying the toy car into a high-speed electric vehicle. Paul said his goal was to exceed the 88-mile-per-hour threshold required for time travel in the Back to the Future films. So Paul took his finished car to the Hockenheimer Ring racetrack and was clocked at the speed of 92.25 miles per hour, fast enough to earn the Guinness World Record for the fastest ride-on toy car modified. All right, I didn't get my road trip for this next story, and I'm kind of sad, but other things happened. We previewed this event last year. It took place in St. Augustine, Florida. The first ever Florida Man Games were held this weekend, featuring events including a mullet contest, a weaponized pool noodle mud duel, and a Florida sumo contest where competitors tried to spill another one's beer. That was about right. Okay. So the all-day event featured teams competing in multiple varied events, which included a pork butt-eating contest, a Florida ma'am beauty contest, and an evading arrest obstacle course that featured competitors being pursued by actual police officers. Hundreds of spectators purchased $55 tickets to observe the proceedings. Celebrity guests at the Florida Man Games included, uh, included American Gladiator alumni Dan Nitro-Clark and Lori Icefetrick, who served as referees for various events, and TikTok star OMG It's Wix served as host. Y'all, I would absolutely have been completely geeked out to be able to meet Nitro and Ice. I grew up watching the Gladiators, and I miss it. Pete Melfi, who is a former radio personality and current podcaster based out of St. Augustine, came up with the idea of the Florida Man Games after organizing what he called the laziest race in the history of races. It was a beer run, that lasted only half a kilometer, which is about 1,640 feet. Melfi told the New York Times, We understand Florida is weird and we embrace it. James Gordon of Deland, Florida won the first event, wolfing down a plate loaded with barbecue pork and sausage a fraction of a second before his nearest competitor. And in celebration, he chugged a beer. Red Solo Cup, I fill you up, let's have a party. Let's have a party. 
appropriate. Anyway, one event had contenders dueling in muddy water in an inflatable pool, pummeling, e pummeling each other with weapons made from pool noodles and duct tape. Another was a theft simulation relay in which competitors raced while toting a pair of bicycles, copper pipes, and catalytic converters. Larry Donnelly said he trained for the relay race by riding a bicycle around his neighborhood with a second one strapped to his back. It paid off Saturday when he won his heat after picking up a bike in each hand and running with them. Leading up to this Saturday, Joshua Barr and his Cooter Commandos teammates spent time whipping up fan support on Facebook with posts showing the trio chugging Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and jogging in jean shorts and mirrored sunglasses. The team name comes from a turtle species celebrated by their hometown of Inverness. Now, the Commandos didn't stop with the online promotion and trash-talking of rival teams. Barr, who is a 37-year-old movie reviewer and podcaster, said they've also printed t-shirts, temporary tattoos, and a large custom flag to wave on the field. These are my people. I am serious. Well, who won? The Hanky Spanky team out of St. Augustine got the championship and took home $1,000, a champion's belt, medals, and a Florida flag decoration. So congratulations to the winners of the Florida Man competition. I bet next year is going to be even better. Well, Madonna is okay after a fall on stage, but Charlie Woods didn't quite make it the cut this time. Twitch just got fined by the South Korean government, and we had the SAG Awards happen. Wendy Williams is in really bad shape, but hey, we landed on the moon. Bob Marley is still number one at the box office. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I do want to remind you, I include the links to all of my sources in the comments so you can see what I see and more. Also, don't forget to drop us a comment or send us an email if there is a story you want us to cover. Join us next time as we check out the latest in entertainment news. Remember, stay comfy in the starter zone. This is Amanda. Good luck and have fun. Listening to The Starter Zone with Amanda. I am Raven. We thank you for your time and support. Without you, we simply would not be. Please hit that like and subscribe button and visit us on Facebook and Twitter at The Starter Zone. Have we missed something? Have something to say? Leave us a comment or send us audio clips for your chance to be on the show. We invite you to come back for more exciting news and commentary on the world around you. See you next time in the Starter Zone.